One of my favorite stories in the Bible comes from 1 Samuel 4 through 6, where the Philistines capture the Ark of the Covenant. I'll tell you why in just a second, but first let me introduce myself. I'm Justin Hibbard, and welcome to Why Catholic, my podcast on the what and why behind Catholicism. I'm a former Protestant apologist and evangelical pastor and co-founder of a ministry called Christianity is Jewish, and at the age of 41, I came home to the Catholic Church. Today, I want to explore Israel's most sacred artifact, the Ark of the Covenant, because when you understand the Ark and the type of power it had and place it had in Israel, you will see parallels of it throughout Catholicism. If you haven't listened to episode three on the sacramental worldview, you may want to do that now or maybe afterward, because we're going to see how the Ark of the Covenant was a central component to Israel's sacramental worldview theology. First, a little about the Ark of the Covenant, and then I want to retell one of my favorite Bible stories. The Ark of the Covenant was a gold box that was about four feet long, three feet wide, about three feet deep. Inside the box were three items, manna that God had provided the Hebrews in the wilderness after they had escaped Egypt, the Ten Commandments, and Aaron's staff. Aaron was the first high priest, and God had caused his staff to blossom and produce ripe almonds. The ark had a lid, and on the lid were two golden angels on opposite sides with outstretched wings towards the middle. That lid was called the atonement cover or the mercy seat, and it was the most sacred part of the box because it was where God concentrated his power. The ark was stored in the tabernacle and later in the temple in the innermost room called the most holy place. The tabernacle and temple had different sections to them, but the closer you got towards the most holy place or the holy of holies, the more exclusive it became. In fact, only the high priest was permitted to enter the most holy place where the ark was, and it was only once a year on Yom Kippur, or in English, the Day of Atonement. This was, and still is, the most sacred day for the Jewish people. The high priest would participate in this elaborate ceremony outlined in Leviticus chapter 16. He would ultimately sacrifice a goat and a bull, taking the blood into the most holy place and sprinkling the blood on the atonement cover between the outstretched wings of the golden angels. By doing this, the priest was making atonement for his and all of Israel's sins. Now, Leviticus 16 starts off with this stark warning. It says, The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron, who died when they approached the Lord. The Lord said to Moses, Tell your brother Aaron that he is not to come whenever he chooses into the most holy place behind the curtain in front of the atonement cover on the ark, or else he will die, for I will appear in the cloud over the atonement cover. That seems harsh. Don't approach me or you'll die. Whatever happened to a God who wanted us to draw close to him? If we go back a few chapters to Leviticus 10, it says Aaron's sons Nadab and Abihu took their censers, put fire in them, and added incense, and they offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, contrary to his command. So fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Moses then said to Aaron, This is what the Lord spoke when he said, Among those who approach me, I will be proved holy in the sight of all the people. I will be honored. The point is this. God is holy. You don't just come to God on your terms. You don't just go into the tabernacle or the temple and play around. You can't profane God and expect there not to be consequences. Messing around with God could become deadly. And the high priest knew this. So separating the most holy place from the rest of the tabernacle 
was this giant thick curtain, probably six inches thick. You wanted to make it really hard for someone to go in there because unauthorized access would likely be a death sentence. In fact, when the high priest went in there on the Day of Atonement, they would attach bells to the bottom of the robe and tie a rope around the high priest's waist. People would wait on the outside of the most holy place, and if they didn't hear the bells after an extensive period of time, they would assume that God killed the high priest. They would pull the rope and pull out the high priest. No one would dare go in there to retrieve the dead body. I want to leave you with the understanding that this box was sacred. It was haunted in a sense. When the priests would carry it, they would do so using poles so that they didn't touch it. Because guess what happened if you touched it? You die. You may have watched the movie Indiana Jones and Raiders of the Lost Ark. It's a classic 1981 Steven Spielberg film starring Harrison Ford as an archaeologist named Indiana Jones who finds the Ark of the Covenant. Spoiler alert, the Nazis steal the Ark and then decide to do something incredibly stupid with the help of a priest. They open it up and all hell breaks loose. Mm, Actually, I should say all heaven breaks loose. I've included a link in the show notes to that scene. Warning though, it is really graphic and disturbing. That movie is fictional, but I don't think that scene is too far-fetched in describing the consequences of profaning the Ark of the Covenant. There's another story we read about in 2 Samuel 6. David had put the ark on a cart to transport it, which he shouldn't have done in the first place. And one of the oxen stumbled and the ark began to fall off the cart. So one of David's soldiers named Uzzah reached out to steady the ark and zap, he was struck dead. 2 Samuel 6-7 says, The Lord's anger burned against Uzzah because of his irreverent act. Therefore, God struck him dead and he died there beside the ark of God. It sounds awful, doesn't it? I mean, Uzzah, even Aaron's two sons had good intentions. Uzzah was just trying to keep the ark from spilling over. That passage might make you confused or angry at God, and you wouldn't be the first. 2 Samuel 6, 9-10 through 10 says, David was afraid of the Lord that day and said, How can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? He was not willing to take the ark of the Lord to be with him in his city. Look, the point is this. You don't mess around with this box. The holy, glorious presence of God was concentrated on this box. It's just too powerful for man. Okay, now I want to get to one of my favorite stories that shows just how haunted and powerful this box was. 1 Samuel 4-6 through tells a story about what happened when the ark got hijacked. It was during the time that Eli was the high priest of Israel. Israel had this enemy called the Philistines that were a thorn in Israel's side. And one day they went to battle and the Philistines slaughtered them. So Israel's leaders conspired with Eli's two sons, which were essentially Beavis and Butthead, and decided they could win if they brought the Ark of the Covenant into battle. So that's what they did, but it didn't work. The Philistines slaughtered them again. They killed Eli's two sons and stole the Ark of the Covenant. When a messenger went to tell Eli the news, Eli didn't really respond when he heard that his two sons were dead. It was when the man said that the ark had been stolen that Eli just freaked out, fell backwards in his chair, broke his neck, and died. I know what you're thinking. How is this one of your favorite Bible stories? It's what happens next that I think is so fascinating. The Philistines took the ark to the city of Ashdod and put it in their temple to their god Dagon. The next day they went into the temple and found their idol Dagon laying prostrate on the ground in front of the ark. So they were like, 
well, that's weird. They picked up Dagon and went about their business. And the next day, they went into the temple and, and discovered Dagon laying prostrate before the ark. And this time his hands and head were sawed off and laying neatly by the entryway. Can you imagine seeing that? I would have run for my life. Then God's anger burned against the city of Ashdod and people started getting tumors. Then people wised up and connected the infections with having the ark. So they did something really generous. They gave the ark to another city. Hey guys, we brought you a gift. Things didn't go well for that other city either. Everyone started getting tumors. So the Philistines basically started playing hot potato with the ark until they finally decided to put it on a cart and send it back to Israel. I love that story for a couple of reasons. First, it demonstrates the power of God. I think a lot of times we feel like we have to defend God, and really God is the one who's in control. And secondly, it demonstrates that communion with God is always on his terms. I think sometimes we can treat God like our good luck charm, like Israel did. If only we take the ark with us into battle, we'll certainly win. If we hang our rosary off our rearview mirror, then we can drive like a maniac and God will still protect us. When we don't consider our part of the relationship or our responsibility with God, that's called being superstitious. I like to think of the Ark of the Covenant like a nuclear device. Nuclear devices are incredibly powerful. They are also incredibly radioactive and deadly. They couldn't just drag God into their situation and expect to just manipulate his power in a way that only benefited them. The Ark of the Covenant was a portal for the presence of God. I know I focused on the negative energy of that Ark, but that Ark also blessed people in profound ways. When the Hebrews were crossing the Jordan River, the priests carrying the Ark stepped into the river and the waters parted so the people could cross on dry ground. Before the temple was built, sometimes the Ark would be stored in someone's home and it brought them incredible blessing. But most importantly, God extended grace and forgiveness through the use of blood splattered on the ark. God used an object as a mechanism for extending his grace. That sacred room, the most holy place, was like a portal between heaven and earth. You couldn't get any closer to God than standing in front of that ark and dripping drops of blood on the mercy seat. What a glorious and awe-filled moment that must have been for the high priest. And at the same time, I have to imagine that they were sweating and shaking in fear. God doesn't shy away from using the physical to transfer his presence, power, and grace to us. It's a concept that we find throughout scripture, both in the Old and New Testaments. This is a core idea as well to Catholicism and a sacramental worldview. For example, we believe that baptism is far more than just symbolic. God uses the waters of baptism to wash away the stain of original sin. God uses water, and we'll talk about that more when we talk about baptism. James 5.17 says, Is anyone among you sick? He should call for the elders of the church, and they should pray over him after anointing him with olive oil in the name of the Lord. God not only works through the audible prayers of the faithful, but he also mysteriously moves in the touch of others and the oil for anointing. We see this idea as well in Acts 19.12, where Paul sent handkerchiefs and aprons that he wore, and when people received them, they were healed of diseases and demon possessions. This is something we'll talk about when we get into relics. In communion, we believe that God is really present in the bread and wine. It's far more than just symbolic, and I'm going to go into this extensively when we talk about the Eucharist. 
but let me just end with this story. As Protestants who convert to Catholicism will explain, in becoming Catholic, we have to work through a number of doctrines. I often think of it like an obstacle course, something like American Ninja Warrior. Some obstacles are harder than others, and it depends on the person, really. As I began to really wrestle with Catholicism, the one belief I knew would be the most challenging for me was the Eucharist. I knew exactly what Catholics believed, and that the bread and wine transubstantiate into the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus. But I had always been taught, and had subsequently taught, that communion was merely a symbol. How does the bread and wine become Jesus? Knowing that it was going to be the biggest obstacle for me to work through, I wrestled through everything else first, sola scriptura, communion of saints, the Pope, Mary, etc. But eventually I had to stare eye to eye with the Eucharist. I either believed it or I didn't. Since Catholics call the Eucharist the source and sum of the Christian life, it's kind of a big deal. I couldn't possibly decide to become Catholic and decide I didn't believe in the real presence of Jesus in the Eucharist. So how did I overcome this obstacle? One day I was at a Bible study with a group mainly from our former evangelical church. We were studying 1 Samuel 4-6, through the story of the Philistines hijacking the ark. Someone in the group asked a profound question that I am eternally grateful for. She asked, is the Ark of the Covenant God or is it a symbol? Of course, I thought. Generally, in evangelical Christianity, we lack the vocabulary to describe this phenomena, and so it leads to questions like, is it God or is it a symbol? It's way more complicated than that. It is a portal between heaven and earth. It is God concentrating his holy and glorious presence on an object on earth. It's the burning bush. It's the Shekinah glory. It's the, if it's just a symbol, then it doesn't explain how it broke off Dagon's head and hands or how it gave people tumors. It doesn't explain why God would zap people for touching and profaning it. Symbols don't make people sick. They don't kill people. And then I thought about something Paul said about the Lord's Supper in 1 Corinthians 11, 29-30. Those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ eat and drink judgment on themselves. This is why many among you are weak and sick and a number of you have fallen asleep. Symbols don't make people sick. Symbols don't kill people. There is something far more substantive happening here. God is here. God's presence is concentrated on that bread and wine, just like it was concentrated on the Ark of the Covenant. Wow. The Eucharist should cause us to shudder. But it shouldn't just make us afraid of God in a negative sense. It should make us fear him in a positive sense. In Psalm 84, that psalmist said, How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord Almighty. My soul longs and even faints for you. Blessed are those who dwell in your house. Better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. No doubt that what the psalmist was alluding to is that he was standing in the place where the Ark of the Covenant was. It wasn't just a building at that point. The ark mysteriously transformed that structure into the house of God. God concentrated his presence on the ark. Therefore, to be in the presence of the ark was to be in the very presence of God. For the Philistines who profaned God, that was a frightening experience. For the psalmist who loved and treasured the Lord, it was breathtakingly beautiful. That six-inch curtain that separated the most holy place from the rest of the temple tore from top to bottom. 
For someone who was in the temple at that time, who knew the haunting stories of what happened to those that profaned the ark, that moment must have been the scariest moment of their life. But for those who hope in the sacrifice of Jesus, we understand exactly what that gesture symbolized. The portal between heaven and earth was opening, and grace was being poured out on us. I'm going to be alluding to this episode quite a bit in the future because the concept of the Ark of the Covenant is helpful when understanding all sorts of Catholic concepts, the Eucharist, the layout of the Catholic Church, as well as even Mary, who we call the Ark of the New Covenant. There's lots more ahead, but for now, let me offer a sincere thanks to you for joining me. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to Why Catholic wherever you get your podcasts. Also, if you've been enjoying this podcast, please give it a high rating. I would greatly appreciate that review. I have another favor to ask. Would you consider becoming a patron? It's just a few dollars a month, and it covers my costs for running this podcast, but I also give a portion of every donation to support Catholic ministries. As a thank you, patrons receive some added benefits, like uh, being able to recommend future episodes, priority in having your questions answered in future Q&A episodes, and joining me for live Zoom chats. You can sign up at whycatholic.substack.com slash subscribe. Until next time, God bless you. My name is Justin Hibbard. And this is Why Catholic.